We're on the second to the last night in the book of Romans. How many of you are ready? Amen. Well, let's pray together, and then I'm going to let you be seated. I know you've been standing a lot tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening up to us the Word of God. Lord, we are hungry and we are thirsty for the Word. Lord, by the Word, we will not be spiritually anemic, but we will grow in wisdom. And I pray that, Lord, you will impart wisdom into the hearts and souls of the people of God tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. How many of you love the Word of God? I tell you, I love the Word of God. It is my breakfast of champions every day. I, I get into that Word. I can't wait to get into it. It's my favorite time of day. And um, the Word feeds my soul, keeps me alive. Man shall not live by wonder bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Amen? Now, again, how many of y'all are ready tonight? Uh, almost done. Almost. We're going to do chapter 15. Now, last time we looked at the principle of the weaker brother. How many of you were not here? Everybody just reach across and pray for the weaker brethren right there. <laughs> I'm kidding. Talked about the weaker brother, and above all else, stronger believers should bear with the weaker brother. The one who is stronger in the faith ought to bear with the one who is not as strong and should never place in his path, in the path of the weaker brother, a cause of stumbling. Very important. This is the law of love. And what we saw is that the law of love is stronger and higher than the law of Christian liberty. Did you all catch that? Because you may have the liberty to do some things that God would not condemn, and I don't mean sin. I'm just saying some liberty, like to eat meat offered to idols or to eat spam, as we shared last week, like Ron does. Do you know that I got persecuted after that service by genuine, hardcore spam eaters who are in this church? And so I have begun to really pray for these people. I'm kidding. No, I had, I had people come up to me and say, don't you come against spam. I eat spam. But, oh, okay. See what I mean? I bore with them. I won't eat it with them, but I will pray for them. Now, Christian love is a higher principle than Christian liberty. Okay? Now, uh, chapters 14, 19 and 22. We, we didn't finish chapter 14 last week, so let's look at it right now real quickly and finish it up. A few verses left. He says, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may do what, everybody? edify one another okay so what the church does the, what the way we live the way we treat each other <clears throat> ought to be that which edifies one another not runs them down slander them gossip against them hurt them but edifies them and that's not an easy thing to do now do not destroy the work of god for the sake of food translated do not destroy a weaker brother that you may practice your Christian liberty. All things indeed, he goes on and says, all things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. What that means is, if your conscience is against something, you should not do it. If your conscience is, is, is troubled by something, don't do it. And if God wants to take you up another level, where you experience a level of Christian liberty where 
What used to bother you or make you feel guilty no longer does. And again, I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about non-essentials. Then God will deliver you from the condemnation. But until you're delivered, don't defile your conscience. That's the principle. Now, verse 21, chapter 14, he says, It's good neither to eat meat. Everybody read this with me. It's good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Did y'all read that? That's a Bible verse. Should I share with you last week? I, I, I won't drink. I don't drink. Um, not anytime, anywhere, not privately, not publicly. I want to be able to say somebody to somebody who's battling alcohol, if they say to me, ask me as their pastor, do you ever drink? I want to be able to say, no, I don't need it. I don't want it. I like having a clear mind. I like being able to focus. I like being able to concentrate. I love reading. I love studying. I love learning. I love growing. You can't do that when your mind numbed out. You can't. So it's my choice. Nobody made me do it, but it's my choice. I know pastors that do. Drink wine. That's their choice. Um, but mine is to not do it, and, that, and this is one of the reasons. Not every reason, but it's one of them. Okay? Now, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself, catch this, in what he approves. Happy is the person who does not experience a defiled conscience in his or her life over what they allow into their life. Again translated, don't do that which defiles your conscience. If something makes you feel guilty, don't do it. It's that simple. Because a clear conscience is totally necessary to successful spiritual warfare. If you don't have a clear conscience, the devil's got you right where he wants you. You're defeated already. He's got you. Because you have no boldness before God if your conscience is defiled. You have no confidence that he's going to answer your prayer if your conscience is defiled. And you don't feel like you've got any right to go tell anybody else about God if you yourself are walking around feeling guilty all the time. So Paul said, I make it my aim in life to always have a clear conscience always that's my aim okay it's really important now always live in agreement with your conscience which is supposed to be fine-tuned by the Word of God don't live only by your conscience because your conscience will lead you wrong I know people that look me right in the eye and say oh I know it's okay for me to do this that and the other that are clearly in the Bible gross sins and look at our own culture right now Look at what our culture is telling us right now. That it's completely okay, no conscience problem whatsoever, for two people of the same sex to be married, two people of the same sex to be sexually involved. And they can look you right in the eye and say, oh, I know it's okay. So they can't let their conscience be their guide. You see, your conscience is fine-tuned like a guitar is tuned. It's fine-tuned by the Word of God. That's how you get your conscience where it ought to be. That's why every day you've got to be in that Word. Are y'all hearing me tonight? Every day, th this is, see, I play guitar. I play today. I, I, I really enjoy guitar. And when I want to tune it, I have a tuning fork. Bung! It's an A. It's an A chord. And I, 
hit it, and I push it up against that guitar, and I hear that A, and I tune the A string to the A, A chord, the A note, and then I tune the rest of it to that. I tune it. If I didn't tune it, it would be And that's the way you are without the Word of God. And your conscience will lead you badly astray if you don't tune it with the Word of God. So, man, you sharpen it every day. Open up that Bible every day and let the Word of God tune your soul, tune your spirit and your conscience. Man, I could stop right there and park right there and preach the rest of the night. But we got to move on. All right? Now, verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Sure, he's doubting if it's right or not. So if he eats when he's not sure, he experiences condemnation because he does not eat from faith. Now read the last part with me, would you? For whatever is not from faith, all two of you, thank you for reading that out loud. Let's try that again. For whatever is not from faith, it's a sin to you. If you can't do it in faith, it's a sin to you. Now the man is doubly happy who not only has an easy conscience as to what he permits in his life, but who also has an easy conscience knowing that he has truly been his brother's keeper, the weaker brother. I will not exercise Christian liberty if my liberty is going to make him stumble. The law of love is higher than the law of liberty. Now, let's, let's continue into chapter 15. Bearing one another's burdens. He's continuing the same theme, but he's going to get a little bit stronger. Now, here's what he says. Now, chapter 15, Paul's going to continue this theme of the weaker brother and carrying somebody else's burden, taking it a step further. He has higher ground to map out for us in chapter 15. Here it is. It's a great thing to treat a weaker brother in the spirit of love, but it's greater still to treat him in the spirit of Christ. Pastor Jeff, what could be the difference? We're going to look at that. The Spirit of Christ demands that we take the hard road. You know what I have found about Christians? Most Christians really don't understand what they got into. They really don't understand the terms of the lease. Have you ever signed something and found out later what you signed? And you didn't really know it? And later you found out? Man, I should have read the fine print. You know, I found that most Christians have not read the fine print. And they're good people. They're good folks and they mean well. But mile wide, inch deep. And when it comes to things like what we're going to see in chapter 15, a lot of Christians don't get it. And if we don't get into the Word of God, we won't get it. And if we don't get it, we're going to miss a big part of the blessing God had for us. So we could call chapter 15 the fine print. Okay? Let's look at it. The hard road is first the cross-demonstrating road. It's the road that demonstrates the cross. Paul says in verses 1 and 2 of 15, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to what? Not to please ourselves. Now, that statement right there is totally against that culture out there. And every message we get every day from the media from a hundred different directions, that it's all about you and pleasing you. Selfish living. And that's why our, our culture is imploding, because it's, it's so selfish. But watch. 
Each of us should please who? His neighbor for his good. To do what? To build him up. So immediately, this is the cross demonstrating road. Now, I don't know about you, but last time I looked at a cross, there was nothing pleasant about a cross. And there wasn't anything easy about a cross. But I know that Jesus said to you and I, Christians, followers of his, pick up your cross every once in a while. Is that what he said? Daily and follow me. Now, can I tell you? Here's the message to that. If you don't pick it up, you won't make it far with Jesus. You will bail. You will pull the ripcord and you will bail. Because you've got to carry a cross if you're going to follow him for very far. Because what he asks you and I to do is crucify our flesh, our selfishness, our will, and to live many times for the good of others and put them above us. And it goes totally contrary to everything we're taught. It's one of the most famous Christian book ever written to this day, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, begins with four words. It's not about you. Now you can understand immediately why this isn't real popular. Because we like messages that tell us we're going to get rich and, and that God's going to bless us with, you know, Bentleys and mansions and all these different things. And we don't like hearing messages about crosses, but you know what? Jesus said if you pick up your cross and follow him, that's when you discover the true life he came to give you. Uncrucified Christians don't experience much of what God has for them. Now, let's go on. Selfishness has no place in the Christian life. All you married people in here say amen. If you want to get rid of selfishness real quick, get married. Because you have to be too good forgivers and you've got to crucify your flesh or that thing's going to be in trouble. Now watch. Paul is not stating that we should give in to the weaker brother's desires, that we should enable them. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying enable them to do what they do that is wrong and that's how you love them. Uh-uh. Rather, we are to act in a way which will be to his lasting benefit. We will help him carry the cross of his weakness. Now I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to be a little transparent, uh, as a pastor, you do this all the time. Because people that are struggling with overwhelming weaknesses, overwhelming problems come into the church. They can't make it on their own. And they walk in there and say, I need help. And all the time, if you're in ministry, I want to promise you, you're going to find this one out real quick that you are going to be called upon to help a weaker brother carry the cross of his weakness. You're going to be there to help them, pray with them, encourage them, hold them up. That's just a part of ministry. The word bear in that verse means to carry along as one might help lift something too heavy for another person to carry alone. That's the word bear. So they're kind of dropped. The picture is Jesus when he was carrying his cross up the hill. He, he fell. And they reached out and they grabbed Simon of Cyrene. And they said, help him carry this cross. And Simon got underneath that cross and picked it up and helped Jesus carry it the rest of the way up the hill. That's the idea. That's the word bear. I can't bear it alone. If you don't help me bear it, 
I'm going down. That's the idea. Paul reminds us in verse 3, For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. In other words, they insulted you, and when they insulted you, they insulted me. How many of you have somebody in your life, you feel that way about them? If somebody insults them, they have insulted you. You know what the Lord says about you and me? When somebody comes against us and hurts us, He says, hey, you just touched one of my kids, and you hurt me. Okay? He said, the way that Jesus lived, He said, the insults of those who have fallen on other people have fallen on me because I am one who helps others carry their burden. The Lord Jesus lived to serve God and to serve and help men. He died not just for the strong, but Jesus died for the feeble and faltering as well. And how many of you can say, I'm in that last description right there, feeble and faltering. Anybody in here is not feeble and faltering? Let me inform you tonight, you are. I mean, you can be cooking along, and you know what? If the Lord doesn't protect you, you can be one step away from a tragedy. We all need Him. You say, well, your Christianity is just a crutch. You better believe it's a crutch, and it's a better crutch than dope. It's a better crutch than alcohol. It's a better crutch than the other crutches people lean on. My crutch holds me up. His name is Jesus, and I've learned to lean on Him. So here's ministry right here, helping the feeble and helping the faltering. Now, he always went out of his way to bear somebody else's burden. He always went the second mile. He was patient with Peter when he blundered, with James and John when they wanted to call fire down on Samaria. He was patient with Thomas when he doubted him. He was patient with Judas when the blood money jingled in his purse. Jesus bore with them. Romans 15 not only directs us to the cross-demonstrating road, that is, I'm going to help you carry your cross, but also to the character-building road. Now we get down to the way that God forges character into you and I. The apostle turns our attention to the Old Testament, pointing out its permanent value. It should be, he says, read and studied because it points to this same character-building road. See, we want character. We just don't want what it takes to get it. We all want character. But we don't want to have to be patient through a real trial to get patience. We don't want to have to be surrounded by unloving people to learn love and get love. We want the character. We just don't like the road that gets us there. But Romans 15 is the road that gets us there. All right? The character-building road. Look at verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have what, everyone? Where do you get hope? You get hope from the Word of God. Man, I'll tell you, if you're going through a trial, you ought to have your nose in the Psalms. You need to have, if you need wisdom, you ought to be reading the Proverbs every day. If you need to understand God's ways, you need to be reading Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Listen, you get hope and wisdom from the Word of God. Do we find the road of following Jesus difficult? I do sometimes. 
This character-building road of shouldering the weakness of others, are we experiencing that right now? I am. Are we apt to lose patience with the weak brother and his scruples? How many of you have lost patience in the last year? (laughs) Boy, today, I was in traffic. And you know that I just love rush hour traffic. I was in traffic, and I noticed we're not going anywhere. And way down the way was a light, and I noticed that this woman right in front of me in an SUV was talking to her passenger, and the light had been green forever. And I was sitting there. And boy, you talk about having to put on Jesus real quick. And when I started to go around her, I saw a cross on her on the back of her SUV. So I waved. <laughs> you never know who's watching. But I thought, you know, the need for patience sneaks up on you out of nowhere. And where do you find the ability to deal with the trials of life, the pressures of life? You find in the Word of God. I know I'm a broken record with you, but you get hope from the Word of God. And the antidote to the vexations and the stresses of life comes from that sweet oil of the Word of God. We will find comfort and renewed hope in the Word of God. Paul says we should not only take the hard road, bearing their cross, helping them carry it, but also the high road as well. The high road as well. Verse 5 says, May the God of patience and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. What kind of God is our God? He's a God of patience and He's a God of encouragement. God is the God of patience, and that same characteristic is to be among his children. If he's the God of patience, then you walk with him for a while, it ought to be rubbing off, at least incrementally over time. The qualities that make for harmony in the local fellowship of of believers are to be found in God himself. God says, I want you to bear with these people that aren't like you. God says, I want you to love that person that you have no natural affinity with. God says, I want you to help that person who is struggling under a load of alcoholism, drug addiction, whatever it might be, and help them carry themselves because they can't do it alone right now. Because that's what God does. And if God is in your midst, then the way you stay in unity is you be like Him. So we don't look at people and say, you're not like me, so see you later. Good luck. We'll pray for you be blessed. No. We try to help them. The high road leads to rejoicing with other believers when they get blessed. Oh, you got a great big fat raise? Hallelujah. Inside, you're thinking, why them and not me? I can't believe it, those rascals. But see, God says, learn to rejoice with those who rejoice, because I'm going to take care of you too. Cry with those who cry. And that leads to corporate joy and happiness. Now, verse 6 says, So that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good stuff. Now, then too, the high road leads to the receiving of other believers, which means hospitality in the local church. Look at verse 7. Accept one another. Can everybody say that together? Accept one another. Then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another. Accept one another. Because He accepted you. Amen. 
So then Paul's point has come full circle. He began by telling us that God has received the weak brother. But he finishes by reminding us that Jesus has received us. How many of you are so eternally grateful? When you call out in the name of the Lord, he received you. Faults and warts and all, he received you. Shortcomings and failings and all, he loved you. He says, all right, as he did to you, you do to others in the body of Christ. With all of our own foibles and failures, weaknesses and wickednesses, with all of our defeats of character and spiritual infirmities, he has still received us. So must we do the same with the failings and the faults of others. Now next, Paul brings the main body of his letter to the Romans to a close. First, he's going to reiterate that Jesus became a servant of the Jews to demonstrate the truthfulness of God. Okay? Verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the Jew on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And we've talked about this over and over in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Remember that because he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he was going to bless their descendants, that was his promise, and his promises are true. So he served the Jew when he came to the earth to confirm his promises and to reveal that he is a God who tells the truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. I'm telling you, you could be here a million years, you would never catch God lying even a shade. He tells the truth. His word is true. You can bank on it, live on it, walk on it, sleep on it, live by it, die by it. His word is true. He then confirmed the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by fulfilling them. Now even the Gentiles can glorify God for the mercy that he showed them. And that's all of us. We're all Gentiles in here tonight. All right? In support of this, Paul quotes four Old Testament scriptures to show in Romans 15 that God kept his promise. Look at verse 9. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing your name. That's King David saying, God's going to move among the Gentiles. Again, he says, verse 10, Rejoice, O who? Gentiles, with his people. That's Moses in Deuteronomy, saying God's going to move among the Gentiles. Verse 11, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Aren't you glad we're commanded to praise the Lord? All you Gentiles. If you're a Gentile in here, can you lift your hands and say, Lord, I praise you. Because you told Isaiah, you told Moses, you told Abraham that I would be praising you. And let all the peoples praise him. That's David again in Psalms 117. And then one more time, Isaiah the prophet says, There will come the root of Jesse. And he who arises to rule over who? The Gentiles. And in him shall the Gentiles do what? Hope. Where's your hope tonight? It's in him, isn't it? Hey, don't you know that soon and very soon we're going to see the king? Amen. Our hope is in him. So there's four quotes from the Old Testament that God was going to move in the midst of you and I, the Gentiles. And he says, God is a God of his word. And this isn't working here, 
There we go. If you'll turn it for me, there we go. In a nutshell, God's redemptive plan was that through his son, born a Jew, as to his human nature, he might reach out in reconciling love to those of every nation. Now next, Paul points out that the ministry of the Lord Jesus is preserved in us through what? Hope, joy, and peace. Now I want you to catch those three words. Those three words are three of Paul's favorites. He uses that trilogy of words in his writings all the time. And of course, that's God using them. Hope, joy, and peace. And do you think they're in the right order? You will never have joy without hope. And you will never have peace without joy. He says, the Lord's ministry in you and I is maintained by this trilogy, keeping hope alive, walking in joy, and experiencing his peace. Every day, you ought to be alive with those three words. Hope. I am excited about what's coming. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. It's an inner thing. Joy comes from the Lord. And peace, having made peace with God, we have the peace of God. Every day, you ought not go out the door until hope and joy and peace are yours. Y'all catch that? That'll save you a trip to the psychiatrist and many, many thousands of dollars in counseling. Hope. Say them with me. Hope, joy, peace. Every day you ought to walk in them. Look at verse 13. Now may the God of hope, he was called the God of patience a minute ago, now he's the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. That means that you may, did y'all ever have a super ball that you bounced and you threw it down and it bounced way higher than a normal ball? Did you ever, that's what you call super abundant bounce. When it says the word abound, it's the idea of a super ball. That you ought to be exploding in hope by the power of the Spirit. I was with a group today. Well, I was singing to Tom Dooley. I had a guitar and I was over visiting Tom, praying with him, had communion. And there was a little group of people there. And um, I found myself saying this. I don't know how people make it in this world without the Holy Spirit. I really don't. I can't imagine being in this world without hope, joy, and peace just can't and you know how we get it through the word by the power the dunamis of the Holy Spirit what a great gift God gave us when he gave us his precious spirit man I could just preach on the Holy Spirit right now and leave the rest of it but I got to move along God is the God of patience in verse 5 and the God of hope in verse 13. There is nothing hopeless about the Christian life. We have blessed assurance. And again, there's nothing hapless about the Christian life. We have boundless assistance. You get knocked down, you're getting back up because the Holy Spirit's going to get you up. And then next, Paul points out characteristics in the brethren worthy of praise. Now he's going to start naming things that we want characteristics that we want in our life as believers here they are 
Verse 14, I myself am convinced by my brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Look at these people now. He's noticing things in their life. He says, you're filled with goodness. You're a good person. The goodness of God. And you are filled with the knowledge of God. That's why I teach the Word of God here on Wednesday nights. Because most Christians are spiritually anemic because they don't know the Word of God. What we're teaching tonight, do you know that you could travel around this, this city, around this nation, on any given Wednesday night, and it will be hard to find people going through the Word of God? So as a result, you've got spiritually anemic Christians who don't know. They've never read the fine print. They don't know the way the whole thing works. They don't know. They don't have any real knowledge of it. Now, he said these people were complete. They weren't just growing in knowledge. They were complete in knowledge. They had learned a lot. If you can hit it again, please, Lisa. There we go. To be a good man is to be the very best kind of man that can be. The goodness of Paul, or the goodness Paul is praising is the practical goodness manifested in helpfulness to others, like we've been talking about. In bearing the burdens of the weaker brother. That's what he considered to be a good person. But they also were diligent students, filled with knowledge. Now the word for knowledge here is the Greek word gnosis, which means to progress or progress in knowledge by learning, effort, or experience. How many of you know that if you're going to learn, you're going to have to sit down and read something or listen to something? Hello? I don't know how anybody has a brain if you walk, if you, every night of the week you're sitting in front of that thing called a television watching what they're giving to you these days. That's a good way to emotional, intellectual, mental suicide. You ought to turn that stupid thing off and open up the Bible and learn something. I say that with a smile. But what a bunch of junk is on there. This week, Kathy and I, we, we caught a brand new sitcom. I just thought, well, we'll sit down and watch it, see what's on it. We watched about five minutes. That's as far as we could get. Prime time. I'm not going to tell you what times. You'll run home and go see what we were watching. But it was brand new sitcom, network, and it was atrocious. I thought, if this is what our country is watching, they're committing intellectual suicide. I can't, no, I could not tell you what they said because you'd get up and walk out if I told you what they said on network television in prime time. You'd get up and walk out. And there it was, little kids watching it all over the country. I don't understand how they're not flooded with calls. But look what these people have done. They had grown, they had progressed in knowledge by learning, effort, or experience. And you're doing great to be here tonight. You're growing in knowledge. Now these good men had applied themselves to learning and studying the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And Paul praises them for their grasp of truth. Finally, these good and knowledgeable men use their gifts to stir the believers up to their responsibilities. They were able to admonish one another, which means to caution or reprove somebody gently. The gift of exhortation possessed by these good men is crucial to the church. We all need to be exhorted because Christians and all people have such a tendency to settle down in the lazy boy to a comfortable life. Hey, I don't want to go to church tonight. You know, I've had a long day and I think we'll just watch what's on the networks. 
and they go brain dead. Have you ever seen somebody that's gone so brain dead, they've got the channel control, and they're flicking it in a stupor, channel to channel to channel. You say, what are you watching? Oh, I don't know. Just browsing. They go in a hypnotic trance. Sad. I won't watch that thing. Now watch. The Christian life is a race to be run, a battle to be fought. It calls for discipline. It calls for drive. It calls for determination. So we need exhortation. Now next, Paul has a word of explanation about his missionary philosophy as we close down at the end of the chapter. The verses that follow go to the very heart of global evangelism. He begins by explaining his own responsibility before the Lord. Look what he says in verse 15 and 16. I have written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. He said, now I'm being bold with you I'm, and I'm repeating myself with you. He says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles is what God called me to do. He laid his hand on me, he saved me, and he called me to be a minister that carried the gospel to the Gentile, us, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Why? So that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Wow, you know what you are? You're an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's what you are. Paul said, that's what God called me to be. This is really a profound view that he had of himself. Um, Paul was called to minister to the Gentiles, and he regarded his ministry in an amazing light. He viewed himself as a spiritual priest to the Gentiles, while Moses and Aaron had offered up animal sacrifices to the Lord, Paul's offering was the offering up of the Gentiles as an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And here's the application to you and me. What we do for the Lord, we ought to see it as a fragrant sacrifice to God. When I was leaving Tom's today, there was a guy there visiting from Canada. He said, I said, well, I've got to go, I, I go uh, minister. Oh, yeah, it's your work night. I said, no, 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 it's really not my work night. He said, well, yeah, you're going off to church, right? I said, yeah, but it's Emmanuel labor. I don't see it as manual labor. I don't see it as work. Matter of fact, this is the gravy. It's during the week that it's the work. This is the gravy. And you know what it is? It's a fragrant sacrifice to God. Because when I meet him, he's going to say, how'd you teach those people there at Turning Point? And I'm going to say, I did my best, Lord, to teach them the Word of God. Okay? Now, Paul points out the reality of what had been accomplished through him. He was not being boastful. He had once said, God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 17 through 21, look what he says. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. In leading who, everybody? The Gentiles. That's us. To, to obey God by what I have said and what I have done. By the power of signs and miracles. Through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum or something like that, it doesn't really matter. We'll never go there. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. 
so that I would not be building on somebody else's foundation. He said, I want to go preach where nobody's ever heard it. That's what I want to do. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And we see that Paul never rested on his oars. He never kicked back and said, time to retire, get the gold watch, get the apostles watch, and go off and live somewhere. No, no, no. And can I tell you tonight, you're not ever going to retire either. Now, you may leave your job, but you're not going to retire. You're going to transition. If you think you're going to retire and sit on the couch and eat potato chips and watch what I saw the other night, you might as well go on home now. But no, if you'll listen to the Holy Spirit, your best days are ahead. You're not going to retire. You're going to transition. Time was too short for Paul. The task too great. The laborers too few. And the issues too grave. He saw a lost world. That's what he saw when he looked at it. A world which in his days was focused on Rome. And although it was no part of his plan, uh, plan to reside at Rome, it was part of his plan to reach Rome. Now look at verses 22 to 23. This is why I have often be, uh, been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, he has admittedly placed Rome on his itinerary over and over again, only to have it postponed until the time was right. Can I tell you, some of you had something in your spirit for a long time. Just because it's been there for a long time doesn't mean it's not of God. There's your time and there's God's time. His time is almost never my time. I'm experiencing some things now I thought I would be experiencing when I was 30. And now being 35, it, it took a while. You know, just, I really had to wait a while. But notice, he said, for years I've wanted to come to you, but it wasn't time. See, God will give you a desire for something. And it may be years before he brings it fully about. It doesn't mean it's not real doesn't mean it's not from him you just let it you let it marinate in your spirit and in his time because paul finally got there not the way he thought he would but he got there while paul planned with care he never became a slave to his plans but what did he do he allowed the holy spirit to set them aside for better plans he was always open to the holy spirit Though he had desires, he said, in your time, Lord, and in your way. All right? It's the way he lived. Now, when he finally went, it was not as a pioneer, but as a prisoner. He said, I, didn't, I was going to come to you, but I sure didn't think I'd be coming to you in chains. Yet now we see his determination to yet go. Verse 24, I plan to come to you when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there. After I have, journey, or I have enjoyed your company for a while but when then the apostle tells when his visit to rome will fit into his plans he has a trip eastward before the planned trip westward now verses 25 28 we're about to get down to the end now however he says i am on my way to jerusalem in the servants of the saints there where macedonia and achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in jerusalem he said i'm bringing jerusalem the offering that I've raised for them before I come to you. First things first. They were pleased to do it to give the money, and indeed they owe it to them. 
For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. That's why we're sending money now to Israel. Because of the Jewish people, we got saved. So now we're going to send back to them our material blessings. <clears throat> now, so after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit or this monetary offering, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. Very soon after writing this letter to the Romans, Paul left Corinth and took with him a delegation from the various churches he had been visiting, which were sending a financial gift to relieve the poverty of the Jerusalem churches. Finally, Paul tells why he's coming to Rome. This is powerful. Verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. What, a, what an incredible man of God. He said, when I walk into your presence, something's walking in with me. How powerful is that? He said, wherever I go, blessings and giftings and gracings come with me. Because my schedule is his schedule, and his timing is my timing. And when I come to you, it's going to be in his timing. And when I walk in that door, there's going to be something resting on me that I'm going to impart to you. That's powerful. And he says he wanted only to bring a blessing. In chapter 1, verse 11, remember what he said? Romans 1, 11. He said, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Finally, he beseeches them to join in the struggle with him. His fight is their fight. His victory will be their victory. Verse 30, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. You join me in my struggle. You, church, are a part of what I do, says Paul. And if I get a victory, you're going to have a victory. If I get defeated, you're going to be defeated. So I want you to enter the struggle with me and know that this is your fight too. It's not just mine. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, verse 31, and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you to be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Can we stand together? Next time, chapter 16, loves many contacts. And I, I thought verse, chapter 16 was going to be a little bit kind of boring, but the more I open up chapter 16 and all these people he names, it's blessed me as much as any chapter in this book. But how many of you are glad that God's grace came to you, a Gentile, because of his blessing on the Jew? Father, we just thank you right now that the promise you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed. The Lord, when the Jew rejected you, you laid your hand on Paul and sent him to the Gentiles. And now we have been saved, grafted in. And we thank you, Lord God, for the incredible blessing and anointing and Lord, may your word now work in us and make us strong. May your word, Lord, give us wisdom. May we grow in knowledge like those good men did. And help us, Lord, to take that hard road and that high road and help our struggling brethren to carry their cross and their weakness until they're strong 
Thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, let's just sing a stanza. God and we'll go. Lift it up and so worship Him. Thank you, Lord.